Welcome to Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. I'm Pranav. And I'm Nakin. Our guest on today's podcast is Alex Gaudiani, Marketing Director at Medtronic. We had an opportunity to talk with Alex on December 29th about supporting the LGBT community her eight guiding principles for success, her familial connections with Harvard, her experience at UCLA Anderson, and her career progression at Medtronic. So without further ado, here's our interview with Alex. Hey Alex, thanks for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so I know Alex, you're joining us today from the Twin Cities. And I'm actually uh, based out there, so I'm, I'm still newish to the Twin City area. And uh, because Pranav thinks I'm not living a, a, a vibrant social life, I feel like I should ask if you have <laughs> any recommendations for, for major sites in the cities or must-do experiences. Oh, gosh. Well, you're asking a relatively new mother of a 21-year-old, so I may not have the coolest, hippest places since I'm living in the four walls of my house but that said coming from Los Angeles I am a bit of a foodie and still stay connected to that in the Twin Cities so I I, uh, I recommend Spoon and Stable and uh, Bar La Grassa if you're looking for a really good bowl of pasta um, and then there's a place called Marvel Bar which is underneath Bachelor Farmer most of these are downtown so um, I've even though I'm locked into my house a little bit these days I definitely still get out to do some foodie activities. Awesome, thanks. And uh, so because this is a UCLA themed podcast, one of the things we like to do is ask questions that current applicants have to answer as part of the application to UCLA. And we think that this kind of serves as a great introduction for our listeners to kind of get to know you. So the prompt is, what have you done to make your school or your community a better place? Hmm, what a wonderful question. Well, since I'm a little bit far out of school, uh, maybe I'll take that as a second, second question. But in terms of community, I've really gotten hooked into the LGBTQ community here in, in Minneapolis. I moved here from Los Angeles about four and a half years ago with my wife. And we were, we were very committed and, and weaved into the LGBTQ community in, in West Hollywood there in Los Angeles. And so we wanted to do something similar here in the Twin Cities. And we've enjoyed going to a number of events. Um, and, and at least at work, I've joined the employee resource group and play a bit of a leadership role there. Um, at Medtronic, we, we have a LGBTQ network, and I'll be getting involved in the leadership there as well. And so um, from a community perspective, that's a near and dear cause to my heart. And one of the things that we want to do in the future is remain committed to that, that cause while focusing a little bit more on youth. And, and my wife, when we were back in Los Angeles, volunteered for the Trevor Project. Um, and she would, you know, spend hours IMing, um, which was a, a fashion and a channel of communication that, that was offered the youth to be able to talk with someone about troubling times and challenges that they were having as, as they were potentially coming out or, or anything related to those. So we both feel very passionate about that cause. And it's something that we've tried to explore and be committed to in, in Minneapolis. That's really inspiring to, to hear. A, a quick kind of question off of that. While I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, I saw that you kind of believe in these eight guiding principles. And when I read them, it kind of reminded me of John Wooden's pyramid. How did you kind of come up with these eight guiding principles? And as you work with youth, are you helping them develop their own principles? Um, what was kind of your, your vision and thought process behind those principles? Wow, well, so these principles were developed over time, over the last 11 years of my career um, in, at Medtronic in particular. And they've been plucked from books and other leaders and personal experiences. Um, so they've really just kind of come along with me and been built along, along the years. They, I'm not sure if you want me to list them, um, but 
they they really are my kind of guiding light. And to be fair, I'm not, you know, there's kind of a a yellow ribbon, a blue ribbon and a and a red ribbon sometimes. It's not, you know, this is not something that that always has all blue ribbons, but it's a little bit of my true north. When I feel like I'm not doing one of my eight guiding principles, it's just a way to sort of reflect and breathe and sit down and say, okay, I need to remember that this is something I believe really strongly in and that I believe is uh, is something to provide my teams and my business. And so it always just kind of brings me back to center and helps guide me forward in, in both happy times and in challenging times. Yeah, so I think maybe let's, I'll pick one or two of them. Maybe that's easier than listing them. Um, and if you want to jump into greater detail, I think yeah, absolutely. stand out to me are ask 1,000 questions. Hopefully we don't do that on the, the podcast. <laughs> I'll have that much time. Um, and then let people see you literally and figuratively. Yeah, so ask a thousand questions. When I, you know, I've had a number of different roles in various businesses, and I find that the best way to learn a business is to ask those that have been in it for a while. And one thing, this comes from personal experience in, in knowing what works well, but also candidly from, from other people and other leaders who haven't done that and seeing the negative effects that it can have. And so I have no, you know, I, I do think that sometimes there's, um, there can be a shame involved with not knowing things, but I really find that if you, if you ask the right questions, if you ask the smart questions, then you just become a better leader. And really, you know, no one expects you to walk into a business if you're new to it or, or as a leader and know everything. In fact, it should be exactly the opposite. My belief is that everyone that's, that they're already in the business as you walk in as a leader, it just wants to help. They want to teach. They want to get this leader up to speed as fast as possible. And there's no way that that leader can understand what's going on in the business unless they ask a thousand questions. And so I believe I have a bit of a brand of that um, in, in my business. In fact, people make jokes about it all in good fun, but um, to the, to the point where almost after every meeting, everyone will say, do you have any more questions? Do you have any more questions? Um, but it creates, a, it creates relationships with people. And at the end of the day, it creates trust, which, which I think is one of the most important factors in, in um, you know, building teams and, and in sharing experiences with teams. And so, you know, to let people see you literally and figuratively, this I learned, um, again, from, from other leaders who have seen it do well, but also personal experiences. And, and a real, you know, really personal experience was, was coming out at work. And so I just think, you know, people can smell when we're hiding things um, from a mile away. And it doesn't, you don't have to be friends. You don't have to be coworkers. We are just humans can tell when someone is hiding something. And so I found that, you know, a few years into my career, in order for, to build that trust that I mentioned before, um, people had to see who I was. And so part of that was being comfortable coming out. And part of that is also just sharing certain um, vulnerabilities. And um, so, it's, so it's nice to show strength and it's nice to show vulnerability with your people. It, it builds that trust that is just so important in relationships in the workplace. And I say literally and figuratively, you know, what I just mentioned is more figurative. Literal is show up at the meeting, show up to your customers. You just have to be there. You have to be face-to-face. -face. And recognizing that we're in a world now where we don't have to be face-to-face -face all that often. We have things like Zoom and WebEx that we can use and we have video and all these types of things that we can use, particularly for global businesses in order to interact with our partners over there and customers. But at the same time, I still believe potentially from my very first role at Medtronic, which was in sales and in clinical sales, that you just really have to show up and, and be face to face with the people um, who you're working with and, and who you care about. So that's where my literally and figuratively comes from. Great. Thanks for sharing that. It's, it's kind of a, an insightful view in, into your process and it's a good thing to think about. So one of the things we wanted to talk about is even though this is a UCLA themed podcast, it would be remiss of us if we didn't mention that you went to Harvard for undergrad and both of your parents 
met at Harvard and you met your wife there. So we were hoping you could tell us a little bit about what Harvard means to you. Gosh, so I'll share a story with you. My, my father, before I went to Harvard, he sat me down um, after I had accepted and he shared with me, you're only gonna remember two things in your life from your Harvard experience. He's like, I want you to have, go have fun. I want you to learn, I want you to do well. But I can guarantee you that 10, 15, 20 years, once you've graduated, you're not going to remember all the books that you read. You're not going to remember all the teachers that you had, and you're not going to remember everything that they said to you. But what you will remember and learn is a love of reading and a love of learning. And he was exactly right. And I, I really believe that to this day. I can't remember all the books. I can't remember all the professors. But I, to this day, have, have just a deep love of learning which um, tends to come, you know, from reading, obviously, but now in the workplace, you know, from, from my fellow coworkers. Um, so part of, you know, what Harvard means to me is it just has become kind of a core of how I operate, both personally and professionally. I would certainly be remiss if I didn't say that it means um, the world to me to have met my spouse there. We met um, in 2005 and, and never went back. We've been together and married since then. So it's, it's become just a huge piece of who I am. I'd, I'll also share that my, my wife's uh, mother um, went to both Harvard and Harvard Business School and her father went to Harvard Business School. So, so they met at the business school there. But what I find pretty incredible by that with both of our mothers having gone to both Harvard undergrad as well as Harvard Business School is that was um, actually for you know for them being in their mid 60s and my mother in her mid 70s that's actually a really incredible feat and I and I find it fun looking at my son and thinking he may be one of the only people in the world whose both mothers went to both Harvard and Harvard Business School just because it wasn't of the time back then to have many women um, going to Harvard, let alone both Harvard and Harvard Business School. So there's, there's kind of a pride as well as I look at my son and I also think about my mother-in-law and my mother and just how they really paved the way for so many women to come after them. At Harvard, you studied sociology. What drove you through that field? Was there a specific career path you had in mind? You know, for for all for all that I you know I love Harvard. One of the best things about it is it, it being a liberal arts school. It gives you a lot of diverse diversity and learnings and a lot of diversity and what you can do with that degree. The challenging part of that is there's a little bit less direction on specific career paths as a result of that. And so when I chose sociology, it wasn't to particularly go into a certain career path um, from that per particularly. It was more just an interest in the topic, um, you know, the study of how human society functions. And it, it now, as I reflect a little bit, it makes complete sense with, you know, who I am and what I enjoy, um, how I show up to work. Some of these things actually plays right into an interest in that you know, some people ask, you know, why not so psychology? Um, they seem really similar. And my thought always was, well, I wasn't as much interested in, in how we think individually as much as I was on how we socially interact with each other. And so, you know, how we socially interact plays a bit into the workplace now, which, you know, I'm just interested in how I can interact well with my team, how I can keep them engaged, making sure that they're happy. Um, similarly with, you know, customers and, and those, those that I work with and, and the patients that we serve. So I just, I really enjoy that, that you know, societal interaction, human interaction, um, and it's something that I have found pops up, you know, as, as something that I enjoy across, um, across the workplace. So, you know, it was, it was a really, really fun and interesting major at the time. Really glad that I did it and really enjoyed it. But again, Harvard being a liberal arts school, you know, the majority, when I was there, the majority of people were interested in banking or consulting. Those are the most common career paths. Maybe they still are today. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, but you know, regardless of your major, um, there there wasn't exactly a specific career path chosen. Now that said, I did not go right to Medtronic right after Harvard. I actually went into Hollywood. 
um, which is sort of a fun fact that people like to learn about me in, at Medtronic because, you know, it was a little bit by default. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, particularly when I was like a junior or senior when you're supposed to figure that stuff out. And it was completely kind of chance, default, good luck that I was part of a, a, a theatrical program called the Hasty Pudding Theatricals, which, you know, probably once a year shows up in the news because of, um, you know, one of the roles that I led, which is the kickoff of the show is Man of the Year and Woman of the Year, where we bring a, a female and a male celebrity to come to Harvard and we do a big parade for the female and there's, a, you know, a whole big event for, for each of them. And so my year when I was the manager of that, um, I had, I, I got Catherine Zeta-Jones and Tim Robbins to come um, and and kick off our show. As, as a result of that, you need to interact, obviously, with their publicists and uh, make sure that, that everything's set up for them and that the logistics are organized and get their agreement for, for their celebrities to make this appearance. And so it was kind of fun because I didn't really know what I wanted to do at the time. And actually, one of those publicists told me after the event, she said, you know what, you're actually kind of good at this. Do you have you thought about a career in entertainment? And I said, you know, never thought about it before, but that's really interesting. I'll think about it. And then I did. And then once I graduated from Harvard, I went right to Los Angeles and started working at Paramount Pictures. Um, and then that evolved into working at a publicity firm, et cetera. And so I, I did that for like three or four years. Um, you know, there's a reason why I decided not to continue with that career path, but at the time it was fun. So a bit of a long-winded answer onto why sociology and how that became a career path. but it, uh, you know, again, enjoyed it, didn't necessarily lead directly to a career path, but ultimately, you know, it, it has weaved itself into my life and into my, you know, my current work operation a bit. So would you say then that your experience working in Hollywood at Paramount Pictures and publicity firms kind of introduced you to Los Angeles and kind of left you with a good experience enough to consider going back? Absolutely. Los Angeles is such a just joy as I look back on it. I wouldn't be surprised if we found ourselves back in California at some point. You know, today, my wife says the only places she'll live are Minneapolis, Los Angeles, um, and, and, you know, Boston, potentially. But, you know, we, you know, I spent my entire, call it formative years in Los Angeles, and I just absolutely love the city. Um, I love going back. We still have many friends that live there and it was a wonderful introduction to the city. Part of your Los Angeles experience was attending the EMBA program at UCLA. Where was that in, in the timeline with uh, you working at Hollywood? Um, and what were your thoughts behind doing an MBA or getting an MBA and why UCLA Anderson? Well, so my my EMBA experience, I, I graduated in 2015, so I was there 13 to 15. I graduated from, from Harvard in 05, so my entertainment experience was 05 to 08 or 09, um, to 08, I think it was. So they didn't overlap much, um, but the, you know, the reason why I was so interested in the EMBA program is partly because of career aspirations in, you know, at that time I was pretty deep into my Medtronic career, at least a handful of years. And with my career aspiration, I knew that I wanted to get a, an MBA degree. And, you know, what's, what's, what was great about the EMBA program in particular at the time, I think it was relatively new. Um, the, the whole idea of an EMBA program, whether UCLA or otherwise, I think was, was still becoming, um, kind of, you know, something that was accepted, et cetera, to have that type of degree. And it, it worked out really nicely for me because I didn't want to leave Medtronic. I candidly couldn't afford to not work. And so it just worked out so well that I could go on Fridays and Saturdays. Now, you know, it's, it's interesting looking back because um, I, I initially had decided that I wanted to go to either UCLA or another school. I wasn't admitted to the other school and um, UCLA put me on academic probation as a way to accept me. And the reason was is because I didn't, uh, wasn't totally up to snuff with my GMAT. And so I've just been always terrible at standardized tests. I've been just terrible at them. Um, happily good on the grades, but not so good on the standardized test taking. 
And so it's kind of fun looking back because, you know, you get, <laughs> you get admitted to a school, you get put on academic probation. You know, my first quarter, I almost get, you know, I pretty much get straight A's. And I got elected president of my class. Um, so, you know, it's just fun how, how you can look back at formative moments and just be thankful that they took a chance on me, um, even with maybe not the best GMAT scores in the world. And hopefully I added value um, as a result to the class. So really grateful for the experience. And it was just perfect for me to be able to maintain my career, pay my rent, <laughs> and uh, continue some of the responsibilities and obligations that I had while still getting a degree. So I'm going to venture a guess here, and you don't have to confirm or deny, but you can laugh if I get it right. Was the other school you applied to uh, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts? <laughs> okay, I'm laughing because it's a good question, but no, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't that one. <laughs> to be honest, I don't even think they, at the time, I don't even know if they had an EMBA program. But, you know, I was married at the time. My wife actually went to UCLA Business School as well. She did the full-time program. and um, so, you know, it was stay on the West Coast, let's call it, or not do it at all. So I had my other couple options. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. You mentioned a little bit you got involved as president at UCLA Anderson. Um, can you speak a little bit more about your involvement um, in, in extracurriculars or um, as president? Well, so as president, you know, it was just, it was wonderful. We had such a fun council. Um, you know, our classes were relatively small. I think it was about the size of one section of a, of a traditional um, MBA class. And so we just made a ton of friends and, and the council was really fun. You know, I would say the positives were, I always appreciated that the, that the leadership at the EMBA program involved us and, and had an opportunity for us to share our voice and to have conversations about how to continue to better the program. Always the challenge is it's, it's usually difficult to make changes during the year versus just being able to help make changes for the subsequent classes. And so, um, you know, that, that, was a lot of, that was a lot of fun to be able to do that and be able to help the, the classes that came after us. And, you know, extracurriculars, I'll admit that that time, 2013 to 2015, and it's funny saying this with a 21-month-old, that those were probably some of the most stressful years of my life. Um, at, the, at the same time as going to school, I was traveling to Minneapolis because I had recently gotten a new role at Medtronic for, uh, Monday through Thursday. And then I would come home Thursday night and go to school Friday and Saturday. Um, and then of course there's a, a relationship that must be maintained, but then you leave again on Monday. Um, and so going to school and I became a first time manager during that time, I had a team of 10, I was asked to build an organization. So it was just a wonderful moment that, you know, I like to call stretching. It stretched me. It created, uh, gave me the ability to have a bigger capacity for, for work and for the amplitude of um, kind of emotions that go along with stress. And so it was, it was a wonderful time, but extracurricular activities at EMBA were a little tough considering that I was flying back and forth from Minneapolis. Um, but what I felt really fortunate about was, you know, to, to just have such wonderful friendships that came out of the EMBA program. In fact, I wish I could have spent more time with my team, with my, um, with my group and developed longer lasting friendships. A lot of them spent, spent a lot of time outside of, outside of school together and just built lifelong friendships. And, and I've done the same with a few, but I wish that I could have done it more. Um, and it was just the nature of my life at the time. It wasn't feasible. But, um, but I would say that that was the most fun about just being president, you know, having impact on, on future classes, as well as being able to spend time with just wonderful, wonderful people. That's awesome. And I think knocking that kind of answers your question too, right? Like if Alex can fly to LA on a weekly basis and enjoy <laughs> LA on the weekends, maybe you can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you considering doing this? Uh, an MBA program? No, but uh, I, I think Pranav just wants me to be back in California, so. Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, funny. Well, we're enjoying, you know, the, the 35 degree weather here and rain and ice, right? Well, actually, right now, I am uh, back in the Bay Area visiting my parents, so. Oh, great. So I got away for a little bit. You're, you're avoiding it then. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So one of the things I, I wanted to ask about, uh, so did your wife start at Anderson before you did? And, or did you start before her and you convinced her? And how did both of you end up in, in marketing? So she, she had been considering actually law um, and then made a bit of a quick 90 degree angle turn and decided to do an MBA. So we were at UCLA the same years, so 2013 to 15, but I was in the EMBA program and she was in the full-time program. And I don't think I had much to do with her decision. I think it was her career aspiration as well and what she was interested in doing. Um, but what I will say is, you know, considering the the schedule I was just mentioning that I that I was on during those two years, I am so grateful and fortunate that she was a bit on the same journey for for two reasons. One, we we never took the same classes at the same time, considering we were in different programs. But it was fun to be able to learn from each other and and talk about classes and things that we were learning. And then secondly, just as a result of that, I would say it was so wonderful to have her understand what an, what an MBA program was like. And I mean that because if your partner you know, leaves at 4 a.m. on Monday and you don't even really see them until Saturday night, and then they leave, you know, so you only have one day a week with them, um, it's, it, it was really fortunate that she understood because she was doing it too. And so we still joke a little bit today that potentially that partly, you know, saved our relationship considering, you know, the, the challenging schedule that we were on together. So, um, you know, at this point, as we've gone into marketing, she probably has had a bit more of a straight line interest in marketing than, than I have. She, she was um, asked to join between her, for her internship between her two years, she, she received a, an opportunity at um, Mattel and she received an opportunity at General Mills to go intern for that summer and so we kind of had this moment where I said well you know I'm a little bit older than her and and I had been at my career longer and I had been dictating our lives a bit with my career where we lived you know what what we were going to do things like that but it was this great moment where I basically said okay you choose um do you want to stay in Los Angeles and we can both continue our careers the way that we are and you can join Mattel and everything will be good. Or do you want to take a shot, go to Minneapolis, work for General Mills, you know, with the assumption that she was going to do excellently during her internship, which I knew that she was going to. And then we could ultimately move there. And I said, if, if you choose that route, then I'll, you know, look into doing corporate job and, and take that route with my career. And, and that's what she chose. And I'm just, again, one of those, one of those sliding door moments that was just such the right decision for us. Part of that decision was her, her just general love of, of, you know, CPG brands and, and brand marketing, which she continues to enjoy today. And as well as, you know, we knew we wanted to start a family. And we thought Minneapolis would be a wonderful city to do that. Um, very community oriented. It's got a bit of a, you know, a Scandinavian heart. And so it's a, you know, it's work hard, play hard. Um, it allows for family and community. And so it's very accepting in that way. And that was part of the decision as well. Um, so she's been in marketing ever since. She today is a, is a manager um, that reports up directly to the CMO of General Mills. And she leads the marketing community there. Um, and then, uh, you know, with my role, Medtronic just being a different bit of a different culture, I think that there, I could chunk out my career into three segments. The first segment was just being in the field. So I started my career at Medtronic in, on a sales team as a clinical specialist. And so that involved being in operating rooms with physicians who are implanting pacemakers and other types of heart devices. And then I would, um, you know, program them and just be in the be in the operating room with them and program the devices through kind of this big computer um, at the end that that, that that met the patient's heart needs. And so that was one. So I got to be right with the patient, right with the customer. It was just, um, you know, even today I say no matter no matter where my career takes me, I think that will always be one of my favorite roles. And it's it's just because you 
are so close to the patient. Um, you have just face-to-face -face interaction with them. The second se segment would, would be in a growth business. So um, I don't know if, if you guys have had, you know, direct experience with, with being an entrepreneur or starting a company or um, even, even um, not starting one yourselves or just being a part of it. Yeah, I had the fun of kind of starting a business under the umbrella of Mentronic. Um, so I was, I was part of, part of a, what we call a growth business, but it was essentially building a business from the ground up. And so there was just, you know, a lot of learnings and fun that come from that type of experience. It's fast, it's nimble, it's um, kind of high risk, high reward in many ways. And so it, it was just really, really fun. And then this third segment, is experience with a much more mature business. So it's a little bit, um, you know, less nimble. Medtronic itself is a, you know, $31 billion company in total revenue and the cardiac and vascular group that I'm in is, um, you know, 11 and a half billion. And the, the marketing area that, that I help lead is a chunk of that. <clears throat> and so, you know, we've been implanting these devices for, two decades. And while the technology continues to get better and better and smaller and smaller, um, the, you know, the, the nature of the business remains. And so it's a rather mature business. And, and so that just takes a different type of creativity, really, in a mature business versus a growth business. And so that's where marketing has been fun for me is, you know, I've been in sales, I've been in sales operations and other functions. And so I found myself as a marketing leader, and I think that for, you know, for the better with those experiences can see, um, you know, how to grow businesses, how to be creative in, in kind of a mature business and take, you know, the different type of risk of you make a decision and you got to change the Titanic because it's such a huge business versus, you know, maybe a little steamboat when you're, when you're an entrepreneur type business and you're making quick decisions all the time. So um, just a different type of high risk, high reward. But, you know, as a marketing leader, um, particularly for commercialization of products, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And I think, you know, my past has, has lent itself to be able to be successful there. We're going to talk about Medtronic a little bit more, but I just wanted to give a quick shout out. You mentioned your wife works at uh, General Mills. Um, they have these wonderful Pillsbury holiday cookies. I don't know if you are not going to. <laughs> they have like the the reindeer the christmas tree um what else do they have i think they have snowman yeah frosties on there um and then you, you cut them out and you put them on the tray um so so those have been uh just wonderful through me and formative throughout my childhood years and, and <laughs> well good to know the one of the brands that she was on at one point was toaster strudel Okay. And I may be I may be getting this wrong, so she can correct me when she or if she hears this. But she was doing some market research, and I think had realized that there was this resurgence of um, college students and just out of college people who would eat toaster strudel. Um, and so they started doing marketing to that segment and actually did pretty well. So I don't know if you ever ate Sister Strudel as well, but she rebranded all that packaging and you can see it in the stores now and it's really fun. I've never had a Toaster Strudel, but whoever is at General Mills, they know who I am. They're successfully marketing me these holiday cookies. And then I feel like there's a strategy. Once I've eaten a lot, I'm going to see some Medtronic marketing on cardiac therapy. I feel like that's a, the oh one. Oh my gosh. It's it's so true. I joke with her. I'm like, if you do if you do your job right, then I won't have a job. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, she she, uh, she you know they do they do really fun things. You know, General Mills marketing is king. Um, you go to their building and you go up their elevator, and like, on each floor there's a brand and you know or multiple brands, and it's really fun that the elevators open and there's the tricks bunny, you know, welcoming you onto the floor, and there's colors everywhere and everything like this. And I joke, you know, I, I, I love Medtronic. I've been with them for 11 years, but, you know, sales are kind of R&D are more king at that company. And, you know, at our building, it's, it's um, a little bit more conservative. And, you know, you get out of an elevator and you just can describe where you are by the, col by the color of the building versus anything else. So it's, it's actually really fun. They're excellent, excellent marketers at General Mills. 
when you worked at the the growth business on on that vertical at Medtronic, was it also kind of a growth business in the sense that even the buildings had that feel and it was less conservative or was it more in the business sense that kind of everything had to be done from the ground up? It was more in the business sense, but, but I have to say it was super innovative. You know, this it was way above my pay grade at the time, but one of our leaders who started the business recognized that there was this one device in the bag of our salespeople that rarely got attention. You know, you only have a certain amount of time with the customer. And so what are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about, you know, some of the, probably the higher, you know, potentially the higher priced things where there's um, a more understood patient population, things like that. And what they decided was they took that device out of the bag of this one sales force. They created and built an entirely separate new sales force that would just sell this other one product. And the goal was to be a market development tool to actually have pull through to the other businesses. And, you know, it's, it's really, let's, let's see, that was in 2011 that I joined. And so that business exists today, one of our bigger businesses now. And so in just seven or eight years, it's, it's had enormous, enormous growth. Um, so it was more in the business sense than the, than the building sense, but it, uh, it really just maintains um, its reputation as one of the most successful growth businesses that Medtronic actually has seen. And then kind of when you work at a company as you know, vast as Medtronic with the number of employees, the number of verticals that they have, kind of how do you navigate through it? It sounded like you were in sales early on where uh, you were in the OR with doctors, then you kind of went into marketing where you worked with a growth business and a mature business. And then right now you just spoke about kind of the four verticals, cardiac, diabetes, minimally invasive, and then restorative kind of, how do you kind of navigate um, in a business like that? Or position yourself? Well, if you can believe, position myself. Yeah. You know, if you can believe it, there's, there's actually classes at Medtronic for employees around navigating the matrix that is the company. Even when we get new, new people from General Mills or Target or you name it, you know, they, it's sort of a joke that they said, okay, I thought that I was in a matrix when I was at that company. And then I came to Medtronic and now I really know what a matrix is. So there's just so many different levels of reporting structures, um, of accountability. It's a very consensus-driven culture. And so being able to get decisions made um, is just sort of a different, it's, it's a unique type of way to do it as compared to other companies. And so, you know, navigating it, I would argue, it's, it's just so big. I could, I could not list all of the devices and solutions that that we offer I, I guarantee I could not do it um, which is actually an opportunity probably to continue the visibility across those four groups but what what the company helps teach you in terms of navigating the matrix is is building a network um, it's ensuring that your that your kind of sphere around you is one of learning and is one of sharing and it's on us, you know, it's, there's, there's, you know, what I'll say is there's great operational infrastructure that the company has put in, such as classes to navigate the matrix or classes on management and classes on um, just continuing education in certain types of areas. So they, they really do offer just a, a wonderfully rich way for you to continue your own education, but that's the key. You have to do it. Um, you know, there's, there's certain ways that you can work with your manager to get signed up for some of these um, elective type classes. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all, you know, accountable people. And if one's interested in learning more, um, you, you've got to take the initiative and go out and look for it. It's not going to get handed to you, but it's out there and it's available. And so it's, it's just really great that Medtronic offers that type of infrastructure and almost like oper operationalizing the ability for employees to figure out how to navigate their careers. That makes sense. And then I'm assuming you took some of these classes. Now you work as the marketing director for 
this is going to be too hard for me to say this in the morning, so I'm going to use the abbreviation and hopefully kind of let you say it. But the CR <laughs> okay. mobile brand management for Medtronic, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges of this role and kind of what excites you? Yeah. So the cardiac resynchronization therapy group is a type of device that um, goes into the chest and there are three electrical leads that go into different chambers in the heart and it helps with patients who have heart failure. And what heart failure means in a nutshell is, you know, the way that your heart's supposed to function is that the top part, the top two chambers squeeze at the same time and the bottom two chambers squeeze at the same time. Sometimes the bottom two chambers actually get out of sync and they don't squeeze at the same time. Um, and so these electrical leads are placed in those, in those chambers to be able to resynchronize them. Um, so it's, an, it's, it's a really cool and very important therapy for, for some patients who are indicated for, for this type of device to help with their heart failure. The, the cool thing about you know, being the commercialization leader, which is just another way to say global brand management. You know, the, the, three, the three key pieces is brand strategy, product management, and portfolio management. So I have the opportunity to, you know, own both the launch of products as well as the maintenance of products once they're in the market. Um, you know, being in a medical device company, our, our you know, our organization and our industry is incredibly regulated as it should be. And so that's an opportunity, but that's also a challenge. Um, you know, there's even there's new, you know, I'll call them new, quote unquote, even though for the rest of the world and some of the faster moving software companies, um, it's not as new. But patient data privacy, cybersecurity, software technology change, you know, changes so quickly that in a highly regulated environment with devices that take, you know, potentially decades to develop, it's actually difficult to keep up um, with how fast technology is changing because, you know, not only will it, you know, you have to kind of, you know, resubmit things from a regulatory perspective, but then you think about the global spectrum and, um, you know, this is the same challenges exist, you know, but, but that said, other companies, other medical device companies have the same challenge. Um, so, you know, bets are taken by certain, by certain companies and, and you kind of go with it. So that's that's one challenge. The the second I would say is there, you know, we all hear, you know, MBA or college or otherwise to fail fast. And I'm a big believer in that. But the interesting thing is, you know, failing fast can have a different meaning as I've learned in a mature business versus a growth business. Um the, you know, you fail fast in a growth business, you just sort of, you know, forget about it and move on and, and try something else. It's, it's very much, you know, throw something up against a wall, see if it sticks, if it doesn't do something else. And there's a culture in that type of business that, that definitely accepts that and, and enables it and, and supports it. The, you know, doing, failing fast in a, mature, in a mature business is still just as important, but, you know, potentially it's, it's just got, you know, a lot of impact um, from a revenue perspective and otherwise. So, you know, I would say that, that the challenge about certain decision-making is um, you've got to kind of balance that calculated risk. Um, and, you know, you don't, want to, you don't want to make too hasty a decision, um, even though it could be high reward. But you also don't want to, you know, kind of sit around and just, you know, analysis to death before you actually make a decision. So that can be another, this whole failing fast idea can mean different things in different environments and in different businesses. And then the, the globalization, you know, just the cost of care and the pricing pressure, um, the access to, to care globally and uh, working with different governments and how they provide care to their, to their people. It's a, it's a really, you know, incredible and intense and um, kind of complicated environment when you think about the global scale. And so, you know, ensuring that we're building a foundation of a business that supports the world um, and just the different regulations and the different government bodies and, um, you know, with the ultimate goal of globalization and improving access, it's really fun to sit down with those types of challenges with a group of people and, and figure those out. Um, but it is a challenge. So you've, you've touched on this a bit, 
with both the, the purpose and vision of Medtronic, but we're curious about what made you decide to spend the last almost 10 years at Medtronic when most people move now between companies every couple of years. Well, and it's funny you say that because, uh, or ask that because I think I came into Medtronic right when the pension was taken away. So, you, you know, you, you know, HR might make the argument that we have a lot of people sticking around um, because they got into Medtronic when that was still around. But you're right, for those of us that missed it, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily an incentive in that way to, to stick around. Well, when I was first interviewing for Medtronic, everyone that I interviewed had been with the company at least 10 years, if not 15, 20, 25, 30. And it was actually part of the reason why I ended up choosing the company is because I thought, if these people are staying around for so long, there's got to be something good about it. And ultimately, you know, it, it comes back to the, you know, at, at the highest level, it comes back to the mission, the company, it's, you know, and, and surprisingly across the world and across, you know, 90,000 plus employees, they have created such a culture that, that there's a shared um, rally cry across all of these employees and what we're trying to accomplish together. And that's a really motivating, that's a really motivating, um, you know, piece to be able to join in with other employees and be able to kind of link arms and try to do something like that worldwide. So that's part of the reason. The, you know, at a little bit more of a tactical level, the, the way that they create, you know, things around um, good management, tactical things around career and development, you know, how that's operationalized. There's, you know, there's really, they, they put the onus on every individual to own their own career, but they provide the tools and the guidance to be able to, um, for you to be able to navigate it well. And I've, you know, as I have friends in many other companies, um, you know, they can be doing well in the stock market, they're great companies, but they kind of keep bleeding good talent. And part of that is, you know, my, my perception as I hear some of these stories is that there's, there's just um, either not a good culture of good management and good leadership, or there's not a purpose that everyone is linking arms in and really trying to drive towards. Or three, it's because that person doesn't really know where, they, they can't see themselves long-term. Um, they can't see 10 years down the road and say that, you know, that's the role I want. And then be able to go on the HR website and actually get help and steps in how to get there. Um, so there's a bit of like a, you know, we, we, we are really big on quality at Medtronic for, for not surprising reasons around our technology, but at the same time, we believe just as strongly in the quality of nurturing our talent and employees. And so I just, I think that's part of the reason why I've stayed is because I've had the fortune of, um, of having incredible leaders, really good managers. I think it's actually amazing that I can say after 11 years, I've never had a bad manager. Um, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but, you know, never a bad manager. And you really believe in the leader, the vision of the leadership and, and all those things together create um, stickiness with talent. And so I think it's something for us to be proud of. Absolutely. So one of the things that your HR team has done has been expand the, the benefit options and uh, one of those options is Bind's on-demand health insurance. And for those astute listeners, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I work at Bind. And Alex, you're currently using the Bind insurance. So how's your experience with it and any feedback you'd like to share? But uh, please keep in mind that my boss might be listening. So only positive <laughs> feedback, please. Well, and I... <laughs> I think, you know, an hour ago, I know that this call is recorded so that these survey questions, you know, <laughs> I know they'll get back somehow. Uh, no, I mean, Bind, is, Bind I, you know, was pitched to us and as employees as, as a new innovative, um, you know, way for coverage. And I've, I've found it great. It was, it was a great option for me. I have, like I said, a wife and a young son. My wife has her own insurance. And um, my son is covered by her insurance. And so um, it was actually perfect for me. 
and I appreciate the flexibility. And I'll, I will share with you that this day and age, being able to navigate easily on an app is key and it's incredibly easy on the Bind app. So you can give feedback to your, the folks that manage that as well. Knocking, do you want to provide your email too if we get any leads from this podcast while you're at it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, well, I'll just have people email the, uh, the podcast email and I will check there if you have any questions or feedback you'd like to share about buying listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so um, not, while Knocking was doing research, um, I think one thing that stood out was you're originally from the Bay Area, like uh, Knocking and I. Uh, but you attended the Peninsula Ball, and you performed <laughs> a cotillion. So when Nakin brought this up to me, he was like, Pranav, do you know what a cotillion is? And this sparked a series of texts with, like, me confirming with my friends if they knew. But I'm thinking, you know, a billion, trillion, you know, cotillion, like four, you know, four billion, I guess, or, or four, four times a billion. Um, and... Knockin watches Gilmore Girls, so that's kind of why we're asking this question. I just wanted to get that. <laughs> He's an avid Gilmore Girl watcher, binges it on Saturdays. I think that's his Minneapolis social life. Uh, but he's also well-versed in dance. He's taken ballroom classes. But if you want to talk a little bit more about um, kind of the Peninsula Ball or the Cotillion, the which I learned is a French debutante dance or modern adaptation, it is, and it's so funny, but first of all, are you Gilmore Girls original Gilmore Girls or the I new one? I an episode, Nakin. You, you take this. Um, thanks, for Pranav, for, for putting me up last there. Um, yeah, <laughs> I've seen Gilmore Girls and uh, the original, yeah. Because, <laughs> okay. yeah, original is the best, of course. Um, so, oh my gosh, Cotillion, yeah. It, I mean, it was one of those fun things that um, if, if offered around your area was a very privileged thing to be able to do and join. So, you know, at looking back, a little, a little bit of a traditional, slightly antiquated um, type thing, but, you know, I was, I was pleased that my parents let me join it. A lot of my friends had done it. Um, so I don't even know if it's still going on there. Do you guys know? I actually don't know. I haven't checked, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was just something funny that I thought I'd ask about. Because I've, I've, I've never actually met someone who, who attended one. I always thought it was one of those things that happens in TV shows and movies and, and not in real life. So, <laughs> Well, you know, Nakan, I grew up in San Francisco when the internet didn't exist yet. So, I mean, we had to do something. We had we had to entertain ourselves somehow. <laughs> so maybe three, two, one favorite Gilmore Girl episode and we see if we can just match. Ready? <laughs> oh, no, guys, I'm so boring. I wasn't allowed to watch TV when I was young. But my, my Gilmore Girls experience is totally by osmosis with my wife, who loved the original. Um, so maybe at some point you guys can do the three, two, one together. <laughs> I've never watched it. I'm just putting that <laughs> I'm maybe a little bit more Game of Thrones. Maybe build, I need a little bit more uh, death um, in my TV show. <laughs> <laughs> Something to have on in the background, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think our closing questions would be kind of what was your favorite memory at UCLA and then who's your favorite UCLA Bruin? Oh, wonderful. Well, favorite Bruin immediately jumps to mind. Are you guys familiar with Martine Rothblatt? No. Not no, So she No, okay, yeah. So she she's the chairwoman of United Therapeutics. Um, I believe that she was undergrad and then a JDMBA at UCLA. And so she invented this, the serious satellite radio. I mean, she basically invented satellite radio. I saw her talk at UCLA when I was at the AMBA program, and I was totally amazed by a couple, a couple things. First, I'm always amazed by someone who has you know, one of those resumes that are basically like a scroll, you know, the amount of accomplishments and degrees and, you know, really just like the passion for, 
for what she did with satellite radio and um, you know, if, if you read some of her story, it's it's incredible just the ambition it seems that she had. The the second coolest thing is, you know, she she's now you know well known voice for the medical and pharmaceutical innovation area because her daughter was diagnosed with with pulmonary hypertension, life threatening pulmonary hypertension, and so you know if kind of inventing satellite radio wasn't enough because of her daughter's experience, she basically like created United Therapeutics and went into the bio pharmaceutical biomed industry and has done enormously well in that industry. And above all that, um, you know, blown away by just her intelligence and the business foresight and the passion blown away by, she has such a decorated career that was driven, you know, her second career driven by her daughter having a pulmonary hypertension issue. And then throughout all of this, um, she's transgender as well. And so she transitioned from male to female right around the same time. Um, She's one of the highest paid CEOs, female CEOs now, I think, in the country. Um, And so, you know, it's just amazing to see someone go through such a personal, um, you know, undertaking of intense, you know, transition is my guess. And what she explained in the talk that I was at while at the same time being so incredibly intelligent and have such ambition. And I'll give you the third thing that, that has stuck with me since I heard her speak. She, I can't remember the detail, but I remember her sharing that she essentially was just didn't only strive for excellence in her work career. She, she did it in her post work after hours type situation where she would say, well, okay, at 8 PM from 8 PM to 9 PM, I do this and from 9 PM to 10 PM. I, you know, do, do it like my physics for stargazing. And then I play the flute and then, and I'm like, oh my gosh, every single minute of her life is scheduled. And obviously there can be a downside for that, but it just showed how, um, you know, she just has this like enormous strive for excellence and just continues to be, I think, a trailblazer for, for, for many of us, both in the medical business, medical business, but also as part of the LGBTQ community. And um, so she, I would love to see her talk again, um, but she clearly had a lasting impression on me when I saw her the first time. Maybe on this podcast, she can come and talk. Yeah, absolutely. You guys should, you should, you should ask her. I, she's clearly a, a huge proponent of, of helping UCLA. Um, so I think that would be really fun. She sounds amazing. And then was that your favorite memory too, um, I'm assuming? Oh, favorite memory. That certainly sticks out as one of my favorite memories. I think, um, you know, with my EMBA classmates, maybe nothing, nothing specific, but again, as I walked away from that program and as I look back on it, maybe similar to what, to what my father told me before my, my Harvard career um, or Harvard experience, I, I really left my EMBA program feeling um, just kind of so rich with the relationships and the people that I met there. The EMBA program in particular, because it takes people who are, I think it's like anywhere from, I think it's average 14 years into a career or or something like that. Um, So you have a bunch of people who have a lot of experience already in various industries. There was a number of military, um, military people in my class. There were, I think, three physicians who were getting their MBA programs as well, just, you know, enormous amount of PhDs. And so just a really cool group of people, smart group of people who have left the lasting impression on me and I continue to be friends with them today. So while nothing specific, I would say the biggest memory I've walked out of UCLA with is um, just kind of the, the wonderful people that, that I met there. Awesome. So Alex, thanks so much for joining us for brewing one ear and out the other. But before we let you go, feel free to give us a 30 second plug for Medtronic or something else going on in your life right now. Okay. Well, first, thank you guys both for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity and it was fun to chat with you. 30 second plug. Well, for Medtronic, for those of you who are marketers, engineers, salespeople, it's a wonderful company to work for if you can handle the Minnesota weather. Um, we, uh, I, I'm, I, I would love for anyone who's listening out there who's interested in a career in medical devices to reach out to me and to connect with me. I'd be happy to chat with you. 
So that's my plug for Medtronic. My second plug, which we didn't get to, is one of my outside of work favorite activities, which actually is gaming. And so we still have 10 minutes. For those of you, what? Still 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, we can jump back to gaming. I've been playing Fortnite. So gaming, huge fan. Have been since I was a kid, haven't stopped. I would say that having a young baby has significantly reduced the amount of time that I have for it. But both my wife and I love the game. We've got all the consoles. Now I'm not as intense as putting the headphones on and, you know, yelling at 10 year olds. I don't go that far, but I do love, I do love, you know, strategy games like, you know, Red Dead Redemption and Far Cry and Assassin's Creed. And I completely love these types of games where there's strategy involved. There's, um, you know, there's a goal to complete. And so it's just, you know, it's funny at this point, I, I, you know, it's one of the things that I do to relax and kind of zone out while also at the same time being able to do something fun. Thanks again to Alex Gaudiani for joining us on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or guest recommendations at Bruin, the number one, ear at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Bruin, the number one, ear for updates about upcoming episodes and giveaways. This is Nakam Bhandari signing off, and hopefully everything we talked about today didn't go brew in one ear and out the other.